Let's, uh, let's open our consideration with a word of prayer together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time that we can think about uh, election. We know that these are deep and weighty matters, Lord, and so we pray that you would open your word to us, that your spirit would guide us, that we might be led into truth by him um, and protect it from error. So help us in this hour, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Now, I know we're not going to really take an hour, but um, the Lord knows what I meant when I prayed. Okay, so um, we're going to talk about just a little easy topic, light topic for the late morning, um, predestination. Um, so this is the first head of doctrine in the Canons of Dort. That's what we want to go through. Um, and we would typically call this... Oh, that's a good start. Um, we would typically call this unconditional election. That's kind of what it's become called. Um, when people talk about the five points of Calvinism, this is the U in tulip. Unconditional election. It's the first head of doctrine in the canons of Dort. Um, I'm not sure this is always the most helpful way to talk about these things, to give them these sort of popular titles. It's good for TULIP, but I'm not sure that it's great for theological learning. Um, I think it'd be more helpful for us to call this redemption planned. That's really what we're talking about when we talk about election. We're talking about God's plan of redemption. Um, and of course, he made that plan of redemption in eternity. So right there, we sort of have an initial challenge because we can only really understand eternity in a limited kind of way um, because we're time-bound creatures. So talking about eternity is theoretical, but theoretical in a way we can't wrap our minds around. You know, sometimes some people will say, God made the plan of redemption in eternity past. Um, but you can't really do that with eternity. <laughs> eternity doesn't have a past. It just shows by the way we talk that we're time-bound creatures. We understand time. Eternity is kind of beyond us. And so as we go into talking about divine election, particularly as we get into the idea of divine reprobation, um, we can start to say, Look, you know, trying to think about the plan of redemption as it unfolds in eternity is going to be really hard for us. These are really high theological ideas. How are we going to try to wrap our minds around something that happens in the mind of the triune God in eternity? Um, how are we expected to be able to wade into this topic with, with profit? Um, these, are, these are difficult things. Election is difficult enough. When you get into reprobation, that's even more difficult to talk about. You know, that, that decree that God chooses not to save some people, um, Calvin called that the awful decree. Um, awful because of the, the outcome of that decree, that, that those who, uh, the reality that's manifested in that decree. And so we might say, if we're going to figure these things out, where, where would we start? How are we going to wrap our minds around eternity? Um, but if you look at the, the, the canons adored and how we unfold this doctrine, we actually don't start in eternity. 
We actually start in history. So this is on page 897 in the back of the Psalter hymnal, if you want to follow along, uh, head of the first head of doctrine, article one. So what we really want to do this, this morning with the time we have is to talk about article one um, of the Canons of Dort and article two. That's our, we have a modest goal for today, article one and two. Um, to talk about God's plan of redemption and begin not in eternity, but begin in history. Not begin in the place where we really can't operate or function, but begin in the place where we can operate and function, where we do operate and function. Um, So we are going to talk about this from beginning with history. And we're going to talk from two simple propositions. Um, The first is that man is lost in his sin. And as proof of that, we'll look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. That's the the first proposition we're going to talk about. Man is lost in his sin. The second... is that God redeems by his son. Now, you see how we're going to try to tackle a tough theological proposition, beginning with common Christian convictions. We talked about that in the way the canons unfold last time, that they start with common Christian convictions. Now, these were common Christian convictions in 1618 and 1619. I'm not sure these are still common Christian convictions. You might have to do work with someone to tell them that man is lost in his sin. Um, probably don't have to do work as hard to say that God redeems by his son. I don't know too many Christians who have any objection to John 3.16. Right? Um, So we're going to look at these two propositions as a beginning to understanding election um, as we talk about God's plan of redemption that was carried on in eternity. So we're going to start in history. Uh, Man was lost in his sin and God redeems by his son. That's where we're going to start. Before we talk at all about election, I think we do have to recognize the the deep waters we are entering into um, and to be careful about that. Um, One commentator put it this way, regarding election and reprobation, a few words of caution are in order. First, we are dealing here with with mysterious and profound doctrines. We shall never be able to give a completely logical explanation of them. We should not speculate about their meaning nor expect to explain them fully. Let us avoid the danger of rationalism. Second, these doctrines are, especially for God's church, and for the lively comfort of his people. We should not use them to begin our approach to the unconverted. If you have an evangelism program that says, start with election, throw it away. That's not a place to start. This is a place you come to after you understand God's saving plan. This is not the place to start with people. Um, The other thing is we're never going to be able to explain it completely to our satisfaction. Um, Because it is something that happens in eternity... Because it is something that happens in the mind of God, um, and the mind of God is not completely comprehensible to us. And there are some things that God tells us that we just have to accept as he states it to us. 
So think about what God says in, his, in Exodus 33, 19, when he's going to show Moses his glory. One of the things that encompasses his glory, he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will, ha- I will show mercy. And Paul picks up that language in Romans 9. Um, now, that is what we technically call in the biz t- a tautology. It doesn't actually communicate new knowledge. Um, Popeye is a great example of a tautology. I am who I am. Um, you, that's no, you're actually not introducing new information there, right? That's just the same information repeated. I will be gracious to who I will be gracious. I will show compassion to who I will show compassion. God is speaking a truth there. He's not explaining it to us. And if we try to say, well, I want to get into why he shows compassion and why he shows and go beyond what he says in Scripture so it is explainable to our rational minds, we're going to run into trouble. Um, Not least of which because of what Isaiah says in 8 and 9. The Lord says, really, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Um, we always have to remember when we come to these things, God does not owe us an explanation. We get into trouble. Uh, See the book of Job. When you start thinking that God owes you an explanation for why he's doing what he's doing. He doesn't actually owe us an explanation. And usually when he doesn't explain himself, it's because it's too high for us to understand. I will show mercy to who I will show mercy, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So we have to come to this with a certain degree of modesty and yet acknowledge that God has told us enough about his compassion and enough about his thoughts in the scripture that we might be comforted by this doctrine. Um, This doctrine is here for our comfort, for our lively comfort, Article 14 says, of the confession. And so God does communicate these truths to us so that we would be helped by them. And so we don't want to lose sight of that. God reveals as much of his will to us as he thinks is needful for us to know and not beyond that. Oh, that's why I'm hung up on this thing. I wonder why I kept coming up short here. All right. All right. Now I'm good to go. Um, he reveals to us what we need to know and what would be good for us to know, what would be useful for us to know, not everything we want to know. Um, and there are times where he has to say to us in Scripture, who do you think you are to answer back to me? Right, when, when Paul gets to a point in Romans 9 where he says, now I know I'm getting into deep water because you're starting to say, but if Pharaoh is hardened, that isn't that Pharaoh's fault and how can that not be God's fault? And Paul gets to the point of saying, just who do you think you are to answer back to God? You've reached the end of what you can understand. And the pot is not allowed to say to the potter, why'd you make me this way? You're my pot, I'll make you how I want to make you. Um... Now, so we always have to be careful with these things. So I am not going to explain election pretending that after we're done, we're all going to understand why God does what he does. Um, What we are going to do is do enough of this to say, we can say this is true from scripture, that it glorifies our Lord, and it should be a comfort to his people. One of the reasons he tells us enough about why he does what he does is so that we might be comforted. So we might be comforted by this doctrine. Um, and so if we get to a point where this is, we're losing comfort and it's a cause for concern, we're doing it wrong. Um, we need to come back to, to that. Um, in, in my dad's book on the Kansas Doherty, he says, um, it is not too much to say that if predestination is not a comfort to the people of God, it has not rightly been taught or understood. 
The comfort comes from recognizing that God has done for us, including his plan in eternity, what we could never have done for ourselves. The comfort also comes from knowing that God is a much better protector of our salvation than we could ever be. That's what the comfort comes from. God is a much better protector of our salvation than we could ever be. And so the first thing we want to say is is start from a very basic proposition, that man is lost in his sin. Uh, Mankind, all people are lost in sin. That's what comes out in Article 1 um, of the Canons of Dort. God's right to condemn all people is the title it's given here. Um, But what does Article 1 of of the Canons of Dort say? First head of doctrine. Since all people have sinned in Adam and have come under the sentence of the curse and eternal death, God would have done no one an injustice if it had been his will to leave the entire human race to sin and under the curse and to condemn them on account of their sin. As the apostle says, the whole world is liable to the condemnation of God. Romans 3.19 All have sinned and are deprived of the glory of God. Uh, Romans 3.23, and the wages of sin is death. Um, You'll notice there's a footnote saying all the scripture quotations are translations of the original Latin manuscript. And sometimes that that translation can be helpful. Um, Think about how that that Romans 3.23 is translated. All have sinned and are deprived of the glory of God. Um, That's the sense that fallen short really has. They're deprived of the glory of God. Um, so what, what, is the, what is the first place to start in the plan of redemption is, is to remind ourselves that God does not have to redeem anyone. Um, and this protects the justice of our God. Um, that we have a God who is a just God and that condemning everyone on account of their sin would not have been an injustice. That would have been a just thing for God to do. Um, And that comes to light specifically if you think about what Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says in addition to those other scriptures. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." Um, We begin not in eternity, but in history, and we're reminded that in history we are all deserving of death and condemnation from the hand of God on account of our sin, the sin of which we are guilty. Um, When you condemn guilty people, that's not injustice, right? Condemning guilty people is justice. And we begin by saying God would not have done anything unjust by sending the entire human race, every single one, to hell. Now that is not a happy thing to think about. Um, that, that's not a light proposition to consider, you know, um, on a nice, beautiful Sunday morning. Um, but it is the truth. And what makes it really hard for us to accept that truth is down deep, I don't think any of us really thinks we deserve hell. Now, we know of people who do, right? And I'm not thinking of like, look at your neighbor next to you. What I'm saying is there will be people who will say, Adolf Hitler deserves to go to hell. Stalin deserves to go to hell. Pol Pot deserves to go to hell. 
These are people who deserve to go to hell. I don't deserve to go to hell. Um, and that's because we really don't understand what sin is. Um, and I, I sort of alluded to it this morning, but when Isaiah is in the throne room of God in Isaiah 6, right, in the year the king Uzziah died, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up, um, the angels can't bear to look at him in his glory. They're covering their faces. They're crying, holy, holy, holy. What is his reaction? I'm dead because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. Like, that's what all the holiness of God exposes you to. It exposes your unholiness and you can't but conclude, I deserve to die. That's why everybody who ever encounters the divine always fall down like they're dead. And the first thing I almost always need to be told, whether it's God or another messenger from heaven, is don't be afraid. Because it's terrifying to come into contact with the holy when you're unholy. Um, oh, all right. I don't want to get too far off track. That's the truth. Right. And what that reminds us of is that hell deserves to be punished, is the deserving punishment of sinners. Hell is terrible when we think about an eternity of condemnation, an eternal death in that sense. Um, but what's really terrible about it is it shows how bad sin is, that it deserves that. Right? Um, after World War II, they conducted the Nuremberg trials and they put a lot of Nazis on trial. And they were saying, you know, one of the first things they argued about was we were doing what was legal at the time. The government said that was legal, so how are you prosecuting us for a crime? What crime did we commit? And they said, you committed crimes against humanity. There is a higher tribunal than the Nazi government. It's a very interesting kind of jurisprudence when you think about it. But there was a recognition. There are some things so awful against the human race that they deserve punishment, that somebody has to stand for the abused and seek justice for the injustice that was done. And they called that crimes against humanity to show the severity of it. What is sin? Sin is crime against divinity. It's even a higher order of crime than a crime committed against humanity. It's, it's a crime against the supreme majesty of God. Right? Um, mankind is guilty of a far greater crime than any was committed by the Nazis. Catechism, Heidelberg Catechism 11 captures this. His justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty. Eternal punishment of body and soul. That's the penalty that that kind of sin deserves. It's a crime against his supreme majesty. That's why it deserves a supreme penalty. That's why hell is justice. What that shows us is how bad our sin really is. That hell is justice. Um, and we can't lose sight of that. Um, hell, if we think hell is unfair somehow, it's because we haven't understood the seriousness of sin. Um, you know, you might have seen a clip of R.C. Sproul at a question and answer once being asked, you know, why is God's judgment so severe? It was kind of a famous clip It made the rounds because he took real exception to the fact that somebody said God's justice was severe. He said, here you have a good God 
I'm paraphrasing, but he said, here you have a good God who is the overflowing fountain of all good. Without needing to, he makes a world and he makes it very good and he makes it for people who he puts at the middle of the world. And he, lives, he sets them up to be in perfect fellowship with him. And this worm that he brought forth from the dust rebels against him and seeks to throw off his authority. And even though he does that, he goes and says, I'll send my son to come and redeem you. He creates a way out. And you think God's justice is so severe? What's wrong with you people? And he yelled it at us. And there was like nervous laughter because at first we thought, you know, he's not, like it's kind of like it's put on or whatever. But he was like seriously angry. And then everyone's like, ew, you know, that's not good. But his whole point was, this is not severity. This is justice. This is not wanton cruelty. This is justice. It's because the crime is that bad that we deserve that bad a punishment. And if we lose sight of that, we really don't understand sin, the seriousness of sin, or the holiness of God. The the, the crime is that bad because the sin is that bad. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were following after the rebellion of this world. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Right? We're not in danger of dying. We were dead. John Calvin said it was a real and present death. As spiritual death is nothing else than the alienation of the soul from God. We are all born as dead men. And we live as dead men until we are made partakers of the life of Christ. We are dead and there's nothing we can do to fix ourselves. We are lost in sin. There's nothing we can do to fix ourselves. Um, And and what the Reformed really saw in this kind of notion that you weren't really dead in your sins, that you were just maybe sick and could get yourself well, is they said, you know, that's the error that was condemned by several church councils that Pelagius tried to peddle that we're not really born sinful. We learn sin by imitation. We see other people sinning and we learn to sin. We're not born sinful. We're actually born with everything we need to come to God. But what we do is we look around at the world around us and we learn to sin. Um, and, And the reformers looked at that and said, that's a heresy that's been condemned for centuries. This notion that we're not really dead, we're just sick. Um, we're really dead and we can't make ourselves alive. And we don't come into this world innocent, free to choose and learn to sin by imitation. Cal- Calvin you know, sort of vividly said, we come, into the, these, in, we come into the world like snakes. We come into the world like snakes. And you know how snakes come into the world? They're poisonous when they're born. Right? We, we all who live in areas where you can encounter rattlesnakes know that the most dangerous kind of rattlesnake is a baby rattlesnake because they're venomous and they can't control their venom. Um, and so you've got to steer clear because they're the more... And Calvin said, we're like that. When we're born, we've got, we got the venom in our fangs already. We are born in sin and trespass. We are by nature, as Paul says, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. <coughs> We are no different. All of us are born in sin. Um, we, we are lost. Um, God would have done no, no injustice if he had left us in the lostness. Because who plunged us into this lostness? Whose sin was it? It was Adam's. 
um, and it becomes ours by imputation. But to anyone who says, well, I shouldn't be condemned for Adam's sin, it's like, well, are you a sinner? You know why you're a sinner? Because you've enlisted in Adam's rebellion. You've shown that you're for his cause when you sin. You show that you are of Adam in the way you behave. All of us are lost in sin. We're condemned on account of what Adam did, and we show that we're, we're children of Adam by the way we sin. We show that there's venom in us, just like there was in Adam. This is our fault, not God's. Remember we said last week that part of the point of the canons of Dort will be to say, the fault is always ours, not God's. The justice is always God's. God is unfailingly just in everything he does. And wherever there's fault to be ascribed, it's always to be ascribed to us. This is our fault that we're lost. And God would have done no injustice by leaving us lost. The amazing thing is that he didn't leave us lost. He would have done no injustice, no injustice to leave us lost. But the amazing thing is he didn't leave us lost. Um, that's where we want to start as well, right? Not just to say, you know, we're all lost in sin. I hope you have a nice rest of your day. Um, that's the bad news. The good news is that God redeems us by his son. And that's what Article 2 says, the manifestation of God's love. But this is how God showed his love. This is 1 John 4, 9. But this is how God showed his love. He sent his only begotten son into the world so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Right? And this is love, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. We all love the Apostle John for these kinds of statements where he makes it so clear what God has intended to do. Uh, John 3.16, which I probably hardly need to read because you all know it already. But for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This would have been justice to leave us in our sins. But instead of justice, what did God give us? Love. In the face of the justice that should have fallen, God manifested his love for us. Um, and there's something remarkable in that, and that's the simplicity of Article 2, where we can start to think, oh, we're going to get in these big theological propositions now. Look at Article 2. But this is how God showed his love. He sent his only begotten Son into the world, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Um, this is the, the comparison that we're, that's being made here. God would have done no injustice to condemn, but instead he showed love. Instead, he showed love. God was under no obligation to save anybody. Justice does not require mercy. Um, but God shows mercy. And human lostness is met by divine love. That's the glory of the gospel. That's the glory of what God has done for us in Christ. The human lostness was met with, met with divine love instead of divine justice. Because God sent his son into the world to redeem the world. Um, and this is so important for us to note at the beginning, because what, what are we saying? Everyone is lost in sin by virtue of being born. 
and everyone has access to salvation through Christ. By faith through Christ, there's not a single person who can say, I can't do anything about my condition. I'm just lost. It's posing the truth, everyone is lost in sin and trespass, and everyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will be saved. So often divine election, as, as we teach it, is characterizes us as if we're saying, you know, unless you're elect, you just can't be saved. And even if you really want to be saved, and even if you put your faith in Jesus, if you're not elect, you can't be saved. We never say that. It's a total characterization. It's something we would never say. And that's why it's so important that we begin here. Just as everyone is lost, so everyone who believes in the Son of God will be saved. Just as everyone is lost and deserving of eternal death and will go to hell if they don't turn to God, so everyone who turns to God will live. Um, you see, we're trying to put everyone and everyone against each other here. Every single person is lost. Every single person who trusts in Christ will be saved. Um, we, we want to assert both of those truths. We're not trying to glorify lostness. Um, we're trying to glorify mercy. We're trying to confess the reality. We need to confess both truths. Everyone um, who deserves to, everyone deserves to go to hell without exception. Everyone who puts their trust in Christ will be saved without exception. Just as no one can say, that's not me, I'm not lost. So there's no one who can say, the gospel's not for me. It is for whoever puts their trust in Christ will be saved. Whoever puts their trust in Christ will be saved. And that's a manifestation of God's love. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Right? That's, that's the gospel, and that's what we want to present to people. Talking about justice and election in no way diminishes what we talk about, about the extent of the gospel, and we need to get that clear right out of the gate. This affirms God as just. This affirms God as loving. And just as he will be just to everyone, he will also, he's willing to show his love to everyone. That's how he showed his love, by sending his son into the world. Um, and when we, when we get this right, then we begin to see why God's people should draw lively comfort from this doctrine. Because if you've come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a testimony to you personally that he did not want you to die in your sin. That from eternity, your eternal destination was in his mind. And that he looked on us in, his lost, in our lostness and said to us, I will not leave you there. And because they can't save themselves, I have to do the saving. And so he made a plan of how he was going to do that before the foundation of the world. Any, as, as hard as it is for us to understand eternity and, you know, we almost have to talk in eternity past because we don't really get it, you know. In eternity, in that place that we can only sort of comprehend in a mysterious, ephemeral kind of way, the living God was thinking of us. The living God was planning for us. 
planning for a people he knew would plunge themselves into sin and rebellion. That he gave a thought for us. That's what I'm talking about when I say this should bring us lively comfort. To think about the fact that despite this is what we deserved in justice, what we are manifest, what's manifested to us is his love. That whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And what's, what's remarkable about this is just as the punishment shows how great the sin is, so the manifestation of love shows how great the love is. Um, sin is that bad because sin is that bad. God's love is that great because of what the manifestation of his love is. Who did he send? Right? God so loved the world that he sent his son, his only son whom he loved. Right? Echoes of Genesis 22 and Abraham being called to sacrifice his son. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Who did God send us? If he'd have sent us an angel, that would have been great. If he'd sent us prophets and priests, and he did, that was great. But he didn't. He sent his son, his only begotten son, the eternal son, firstborn from before all the world, the second person of the Trinity. That's who came to save his people. That's how much God loves his people. Hell shows how great the crime is, Jesus shows how great the love is. That's how much God loved a people who had plunged themselves into sin. That shows how much God loves you in that he sent you his son and says to all of you, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever, without exception, each one, who believes in the Son of God, will be saved. Um, You see how this is not just theology for the sake of theology. That that the the church never meant to come and have, let's say, all right, everybody, you know, buckle your helmet on, we're going to do election now, and have everybody's eyes just roll in the back of the head. What what kind of comfort is this going to be to me? Great, we have to weather this storm. Um, maybe we'll finally get to something comforting like, I don't know, John 3.16. It's right out of the gate. These are the, the common Christian convictions we have. God owed mercy to no one. He offers it to everyone. That tells us what kind of God we have. That tells us what kind of awesome plan of redemption that he worked from before the foundation of the world. That he said, I have a plan for fixing this. I have a plan for people who are dead and lost. And my plan is to send my son to do what needs doing to save the lost. And of course, that's, you know, the cross of Christ is what we always say. That's where justice and mercy kiss, right? That's, that's the explanation of how God can save people who are lost. Um, because he visits the justice on his son in our place. And the son comes into the world willing to take it. Right, knowing what hell is better than we do. Because he can actually understand eternity and we can't. Um, understanding hell for what it is, he comes and says, I'll take that for them. 
Why? Because He loves us. Because He loves the Father and the Father loves us. But because He loves us, He's willing to come and take what we deserve in terms of justice that we might get what He deserves, which is everlasting love. He comes so that you won't perish. We don't teach this doctrine to try to pretend we know who's elect. We teach this doctrine because the Bible teaches it. But what we say to the world is, you're dead without him, and you can live with him. You're dead without him, but he doesn't want you to die. He sent you his son, so that whoever believes in him will be saved. And we say to everyone we go out in the world, when they say, me too, you too. And if you feel like a vile sinner that you couldn't possibly, like if you feel this in your bones and can't accept this, he says to you, it's for you too. I came for sinners. I came knowing the lostness of the lost in a way you don't understand it. I know what lostness means. I know what God's wrath is. I know what hell is. I understand it completely. I know exactly who you are. And he knew who we were when he made the plan. Right? He knew who we were when he made the plan. Jesus knew who he was coming for when he came. He knows who he's calling to when he says, come to me and live. Right? And so nobody can ever say, not me. I'm too bad, I'm too far gone. No, Jesus says to you too, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light and you'll find rest for your souls. This is why we teach this, so that we would be comforted to know that in the midst of our lostness and sin, the God in heaven had thought for us and said, I'm not going to leave them. I'm going to save them. Um, That's lively comfort. Um, And that's what we, we come to again and again in the scriptures. Why are they there? What does God want people to take away from them? This is John beautifully put it in John 20. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. You should have died. We all should have died. The fact that we don't is a manifestation of his love. This is for our comfort. This is for our lively comfort to know that in our lostness, the God in heaven had thought for us. That's where we have to begin in talking about election. We have to start from these basic truths of history. We were lost, and into the lostness of the world, God sent his son to save. So we would not perish, but have eternal life. So we have to start there. Now it is, we are going to get into the deep end of the pool eventually. Um, But we have to start there if we're to make any progress in understanding election. Um, to realize that just as everyone deserved to die, everyone is offered salvation in Christ. And that's the mission of the church. Um, so that's what I wanted to say. Are there any questions about that? Yeah. So when, when somebody doesn't uh, accept the axiom or apology that says, If someone won't accept God saying, I'll have compassion on whom I'll have yeah, compassion. They, they want to go further. You said, uh, you know, 
Yeah. Well, yeah, I think, I think what we can do is, as we've done with our confessions, if you can't, you know, how much can we know, right? Paul doesn't start by saying, hey, God says I'll have combat. You can't think any about, any about this at all, right? He starts in Roman 9 by saying, what, what did we see in the world? Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And why? Well, it was before they had done anything good or bad. Um, he had decided to set his love on Jacob. Um, just the way he decided to harden Pharaoh's heart. So we know that those are decisions that God made. And then he said, but someone will say, but then how can you find fault with Pharaoh? Because God hardened his heart. So why does he still find fault? Then Paul will get to the point of saying, now, now who are you to answer back to God? You can work through some of it, but you always will, you always will bump up against what you can't know. Uh, maybe, maybe it's like, you know, trying to go around a circle from two directions, right? Say, you know, there's a circle here, which is what God does. And we can come partway this way, and we can come partway that way, but we can't ever wrap our whole mind around it. And there's going to come a point where you're going to be beyond what you can learn. And if you go beyond it, you're going to try to transgress it. And what we say is you've transgressed it if you ever come to the point of saying, God is somehow at fault here. God is somehow being unjust in leaving people in their sin that's not fair, um, or that God is somehow unjust by redeeming people who only choose for him, that's somehow unjust to pick and choose winners and losers. Um, and what the scriptures tell us is he does. And so to say that he's somehow being unjust conflicts with other things in scripture, that God is good, he's the overflowing fountain of all good, there is no shadow of variation in him, he's the father of lights. Like you can't say God is unjust. So you can understand part of it this way, part of it that way, but usually you buck into a wall when you start saying, this sounds like it's making God the author of sin. Well, God says he's not the author of sin, so you can't go that way. Um, well, this sounds unfair. Well, God is not unfair. He's righteous in all his ways, and so you can't go beyond that. So usually fault and justice are where we start to go wrong. And so we try to investigate without stepping over the line. And we know we've stepped over the line when we start to contradict something that Scripture plainly teaches. So that, that's as much, I guess, as I can do in that, that kind of thing. So we, he will have compassion on who he will have compassion, but he does explain things to us as to, in some ways, that we can understand. But if we go, try to go beyond what Scripture says, we're not going to be able to figure it out. Um, so we have to be careful not to say, I need to understand this philosophically. And that's hopefully what we'll do a little bit as we go along, too. Yeah, sure. Right. Yeah, I mean, we, can't, we can talk about what eternity is, but we can't really understand it. When we say God is eternal, he's eternal in a way that's irrespective of time. And so in a sense, all of time happens under him. And so he's eternally present in every part of the timeline at every point. Um, but he's not in any way bound by the timeline. And that's you know, what makes our heads tend to break when we get into these kinds of things. Because we, you know, we, we say God is immense, so he fills every space completely, but he's not bound by space. 
So God completely fills this building and he completely fills the universe, but the universe doesn't contain him. He's actually beyond that too. And so, well, how can you be contained and uncontained? Like we don't get that because we dwell in space and time. And so, yeah, to a certain extent, eternity is, is impossible for us to understand. We, we enter into history and then we become immortal. So we, we, can, we go on forever in the Lord, um, but we always have a beginning. And so as a kid, I used to struggle with that. We, how do you begin? Like, how can God not have a beginning? Um, but it becomes a huge comfort to us that he doesn't have a beginning. Um, because as you know, one, one scholar said, applying the eternal decrees of God, he said, well, what, what's your greatest assurance that God will never stop loving you? He never started loving you. He's always loved you. He's eternally loved you. You can't get back before when he loved you. Just as you can't get beyond when he'll love you. He's loved you with an everlasting love. And that's just straight out of Jeremiah 31.3. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've continued my faithfulness towards you. Um, and he did that when he says in Jeremiah 31, I came to you in the wilderness on your own. I said to you, I've loved you with an everlasting love. He'll never stop loving us because he never started. I can't understand that fully, rationally, but it's true. Um, yeah, that's our time. So if you have kids, please go collect them. Um, our time is officially over. And so that's what we're also trying to do. All right, well, thank you for coming. You're dismissed. Look forward to keep going through this with you as we go on. Thank you.